Welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture with people in Maine and beyond, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association in conjunction with WERU, your community radio station. Common Ground Radio can be heard on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. here on WERU Community Radio. Archives of previous episodes can be found at weru.org and on the WERU app. My name is Holly Cedarholm, and I'm your host for today's episode of Common Ground Radio. The Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association, known as MOFCA for short, is celebrating 50 years. To commemorate this milestone, they have put together a 50th anniversary book called The Organic Farming Revolution, Past, Present, Future. Slated for release from Downey's books this fall, The Organic Farming Revolution is a collection of essays with contributors from throughout Maine and across the country. Seed savers, historians, chefs, farmers, gardeners, activists, and food system thinkers dig into the roots of organic farming and the role that small farmers have played in it. The book also looks to the future of organic farming with essays on human power, holistic soil health, regional economies, climate resilience, and social justice. For today's show, we'll be diving into the pages and more specifically, focusing on essays that conjure up Maine's harvest season and agricultural community. My first guest is Eli Berry. Eli grew up in Maine in a family of gardeners, farmers, and educators. He's an independent contractor specializing in low-impact forestry and a partner in Crystal Lake Farm and Nursery, a native tree and plant nursery in Washington, Maine. He is also a longtime member of MACA's Board of Directors and the Common Ground Country Fair Steering Committee. Eli, welcome to Common Ground Radio. Thank you, and hello, Holly. Hello, everybody. Happy to be here. So your essay in the Organic Farming Revolution focuses on the Common Ground Country Fair, which is an annual event of the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. This year's fair scheduled to be held on September 24th, 25th, and 26th in Unity, Maine, marks the 45th year of the fair. For people who have not attended this event, how would you describe it? <laughs> uh, it is a, a wonderful gathering of really the best of what Maine's uh, rural rural and um, now quite diverse urban economy for Maine anyway has to offer. We, um, our tagline for the fair is celebrating rural living, but that is really broadly interpreted to really um, focus on the skills that we need to teach each other in order to work together to solve our bigger problems, whether that's feeding ourselves or, or keeping our resources safe and clean or raising our children. Um, it's, uh, it's a very, very much a cooperative, uh, an expression of cooperative efforts. There is competition, there is, um, there is agricultural uh, exposition of, of different ways and means of growing food, but and other things that a rural economy needs to thrive. But, but what we really do show in the three days that we're there is, is how a large group of people can work together cooperatively um, to, to create a, a slightly different world. The three days at the fair are really a, a, an expression of a, of a different way that we could be living together. And, and that's really the, the bulk of our work. So I'm curious about some of like the sights and the sounds and the smells of the fair, like a visual kind of thing. So how is it similar and different to other agricultural fairs that folks might be familiar with in Maine or other places? Probably the first thing that people will notice is very different about our fair is that there is no midway. So there are not a lot of um, 
large, loud, crashing rides or, or mechanized um, forms of entertainment. Um, we really, most of what we show is, is human and animal powered, human scaled um, work and entertainment and education. So you will see a lot of um, examples of craft and art. Um, obvious food is probably the biggest, the biggest draw and the biggest um, distinguishing part that distinguishes us from other events, I should say, other fairs. We, from the inception, the offerings of food have included the usual traditional fare, but we also have really embraced a lot of the new food culture that has, that has come to Maine or developed in Maine over the last 45 years. Um, so you will find things to eat that you will not find at other fairs. Um, and I guess the other thing that I, I hear from a lot of new fair goers is just sort of a, a sense of, of wonder that this many people can be together in one place um, and, and not only have the sort of human scaled uh, teaching and, and, entertainment that we that goes on um which is sort of everywhere all throughout the fair spattered around you see examples of just you know one person sharing what they know with a, a lot of other people and that kind of education is just very um it's a rare thing to have and i think we've been able to really draw a lot of a lot of people into the role of educators who didn't know that they had something to share but um a lot of the skills that we show, whether that's home canning to animal uh, care and training is really, um, a lot of it is fairly old fashioned stuff that most folks don't have a chance to learn. And the thing that ties all of what we do together is that we are really teaching how to be a community, how to need each other, how to rely on each other, how to ask for help, how to offer help, um, the stuff that thriving communities in our grandparents' generations were just sort of known, understood, natural. So uh, I hope that helps paint a picture. Well, um, you absolutely painted the picture. You've touched upon this just now and also in your essay, how celebrating the harvest season and creating that environment for agricultural skills is really important for the event. So I'm wondering if you might read a brief excerpt from the introduction of your essay in Mofka's forthcoming book. The essay is titled creating common ground through the country fair. Sure, absolutely. I'd, I'd love to. Uh, you mentioned painting a picture, too. And I, I, when I was writing this, I was very aware of the fact that the, right, the text would be interspersed with lots of pictures of the fair. And, uh, and, I, and I really rely on that because I do think that it's such a big experience to be there that you really need to engage as many senses as possible to get the picture. But here's what I have for text for my introduction. In 1976, five years into the life of Mofka, the seed of a fair was planted. The success of the event, the organization behind it, and the many manifestations of its influence across Maine and beyond are proof of the fact that like an organic food system, traditional country fairs have intrinsic value and are a public good. However novel, and revolutionary that first common ground country fair may have felt, it was in fact a recreation of the kinds of celebrations that have sustained agriculture for centuries. What was novel though, was how far removed most Americans at that time had become from the soil, their food, and each other. What felt revolutionary 
was the collective recognition of that distance and the shared intention to reconnect. The feast day, harvest festival or fair, by whatever name, is a ceremonial acknowledgement of the gifts, obligations, and responsibilities to live in right relation to one another and to the calendar year. It offers an opportunity to, the, to be grateful, to exchange the abundance of our specific gifts, articulate our mutual independence, as well as the blessings of community, nature, and home. The Wabnaki and their indigenous neighbors have gathered in autumn for generations, sharing the fruits of their cooperative village gardens, after which dividing into smaller family clan camps for winter. Everywhere across the Northern Hemisphere, where food is grown or gathered, in the shortening days of fall, celebration binds together and pollinates across communities, filling root cellars, pantries, and imaginations alike with another year's generosity, possibility, and potential. Thank you so much for sharing that. What are some of the ways that celebrating the harvest and perpetuating this culture of agriculture in Maine are built into the fair? Well, I think the simplest answer is that a three-day fair that has 60,000 people come to your fairgrounds is, uh, is simply too big an event to do alone. Um, we rely on a, uh, a very, um, very competent staff, and we always have at Mosca, but we could not do it without a lot of volunteers, thousands of volunteers every year that make it possible. And, and that is much like a, a rural economy, a healthy rural economy, I should say. Most of agriculture at one point or another requires the help of somebody or something. We've used uh, in the last couple of generations machines and chemicals and uh, genetic engineering to remove that uh, or to try to remove that need for others to help us. But in any natural system, it's more than just one thing that makes a thing happen. It's all connected. And um, so in the fair, we have this three days to really model um, a healthy system again where um, people are selling things for the true cost of what it takes to produce them. And people are understanding that to get clean water, you not only need to um, you not only need to preserve the water but that, that you have for your life, but you need to make sure that your your children and their children can have that clean water. And all of that requires a collective effort. And most of our culture these days is about individualism and um, and tribalism and nationalism are always close behind that. Uh, but really what what we're trying to show in the fair is that, our economy depends on the natural world and in order to work in a, in a way in right relation with that natural world, it's impossible to do it alone. We've always needed each other. We're, we're not all good at everything. And when you live in the rural world, um, you do need to have the ability to solve a lot of your own problems. And the fair is a great way to show that um, in a healthy, organic agriculture where people are very much a part of it um it is cooperative models of problem solving that will get you through um and each of us is dependent upon each other for 
or an awful lot that we sometimes take for granted. <clears throat> so the fair is an opportunity to not just, I think of it as a bit of a, of a laboratory. We have three days to sort of change the rules a little bit. Everyone who comes abides by guidelines that are a little different maybe than um, the real world, quote unquote. But in those three days, we really prove proof of concept that um, you can create systems where humans can uh, can really count on each other and and achieve a greater good through that cooperative effort. And the fair just we try to do that at just about every level of what we do there. Yeah, you have another great line I'm just going to read here uh, that I think speaks to that really well. You write in your essay, solutions to critical problems in agriculture and society need to be developed in the field, in trials, through a calendar year, and over numerous generations. A healthy agriculture needs many participants actively and consistently working toward those solutions. Ceremony and the attendant celebration are necessary to create the spirit of sharing required to perpetuate the cycle. That quote definitely gets to uh, something that I've been I've been thinking a fair amount about listening to the struggles about education and how we're learning more and more that, um, well, not just education, but health, how important it is to be in the presence of, of nature and green space and outdoor space for the 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 value of, of wonder and awe in our health, how important it is to us. And one of the things that I've found about the fair is that we also need to recognize that we can find that in, in groups of people too, in large groups of people. I think with the pandemic, we've all been missing that um, collective sense of, you know, people talk about a hive mind or, you know, it's the sense of yourself as part of something bigger than yourself. And I think a lot of the people that come to our fair, particularly those who come to volunteer, they come seeking a sense of belonging that maybe they have not been able to find in the modern world in other places. And um, it is an awe-inspiring thing to to be part of a group of people working, knowing that everybody's doing this as volunteers, um, and and everybody has a possibility to be heard. Their voices are valued. There's leadership opportunities throughout. Um, that's the great thing about volunteerism in general is. Uh, without the the economic uh, exchange being so emphasized, it's just we recognize that a lot of helping each other is is natural. It's, there's an evolutionary reason why um, we we help one another, and um, when we're around groups of people that are collectively helping each other in large number, it has a really profound effect. Uh, I think it it generates the kind of hopefulness and positivity and creative problem solving that we are desperately going to need going forward. And the sooner we recognize that there's strength in our cooperative models, um, the better off we will be in whatever, whatever endeavor. But, but agriculture is a pretty, can be a pretty cruel judge of your ability to um, stay in right relation. Most of agriculture is about a relationship. You're, everything that you do on the day-to-day -day basis is put in context, whether that's the weather determining something, whether that's the availability of labor or market or implements broken or whatever. Um, and that dance that you have to do uh, is, is one that, you know, Moscow has always been a group of people 
as farmers and gardeners often are working in, in relative isolation in your business. You're often self-employed. If you're farming, you're usually farther away from urban centers, group, you know, town centers. Um, and we have used the fair and all of the work of Mosca in the 365 days of the year. Uh, I put a particular shout out to the MOF&G publication that really provides that access to the larger community throughout the year. And then when the fair comes around, it's like a, a ceremonial acknowledgement that we need to do this every year to remind ourselves that this is the right way. This is the path. Um, it is about cooperation. It is about um, collective problem solving. It's about determining reasonable limits and, and to what we what we allow. And there's there are some, you know, we, we do ask some pretty specific things of people to be part of our fair um, as far as, you know, or to be certified as an organic grower. That's there's a kind of give and take, but um, we and we have hard and fast standards about what we accept for whether that's food or behavior. But if you can set up those standards and if and if they can um, be pre presented in a way that people feel like there's a greater good that these standards serve, it's amazing what people will. Um, how hungry I think people are to be part of a group that's doing something good. Um, and we really, whether, and I think when we're gardening or farming, we also, you know, we wouldn't put so much work in it if we didn't know it would be so appreciated either in the marketplace or at the table. Um, so it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a giving back. Um, and a, it's a sort of way, I think for a lot of people, they're, uh, the, what they get from their time volunteering or being or participating in, in particularly the fair is uh, it's a really quick way to learn that sometimes giving something away is a great way to gain something for yourself. You're listening to Common Ground Radio on WERU Community Radio. On today's show, we're discussing Mafka's 50th anniversary book called The Organic Farming Revolution, Past, Present, Future, which will be out this fall from Down East Books. You can pre-order a copy at www.mofka.org. I'm your host, Holly Cedarholm, and my guests today are Eli Berry and later John Bunker. Since this is a pre-recorded show, we are not taking calls. I wanted to dig in a little bit to this ethos that's been embodied and growing um, in the fair since its inaugural event in 1977. That first year drew an astonishing 10,000 people, 20,000 fair growers, attended in 1978, and the attendance grew to over 60,000 by 2002. But you write about how the Common Ground Country Fair was actually born after the heydays, so to speak, of agricultural fairs, that fairs were popular in the early 19th century when almost everyone farmed or gardened at that time. But this widespread participation in agricultural fairs declined in correlation to the consolidation of agriculture following World War II. I'm wondering if you can speak to some of that history and why you think the Common Ground Fair in particular was so successful from its outset. And you, you've already spoke a lot to this in terms of people wanting community and connection, but I was wondering if there's anything else you wanted to add. Yeah, I think the, 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 the part that you, you can't, you can't avoid talking about is that uh, the, the Harvest Festival as a, as a cultural societal um, event 
that tied the community together it stretches back as far as you know people have been probably eating uh, together. So it goes back a lot farther than our first formal expositions here in Maine. Um, but I think the really what you were what you're alluding to is that at a certain point, as uh, pretty much after World War II, most of agriculture became um, more of less culture and more industry. And most of the leaders of that industry and that field in general um, were no longer your neighbor uh, or or the old the old family of who who had the tree that the particular apples came off of or had that strain of of seeds um, and and a lot of that became as it became consolidated by industry the experts were no longer your neighbor or you just learning it was suddenly a branded titled um, you know corporate entity often and and then and our fairs followed followed that pattern. So fairs became a little bit more about bigger, fastest, uh, heaviest, a, a little more emphasis on competition, on yield, quantity, um, the kind of measurables that uh, our economy is so focused on. Uh, but what made the fair, the Common Ground Fair, different in 76 when we started was um, really an emphasis on there are people doing it other ways who are not following the industrial chemical approach and and what they are doing and the way they are teaching which is to say neighbor to neighbor peer to peer um, using some of the education resources of the state of maine uh, which we were lucky to have uh, and that really resonated in in the early 70s there were not only a lot of people coming to Maine who, who didn't know much about agriculture but really wanted to, but also demographically, we still had an awful lot of people alive in the state of Maine who grew up really, you know, not even noticing the depression because Maine's economy has always been pretty make or break. It's not an easy place to raise food or make a living. It's the weather's challenging, the we're different distance from the market. And so when people saw that there was a gathering of 10,000 people that was really sh about sharing these new these tools, some of which were new, some of which were old. You know, it was everything from solar panels and windmills to uh, old seed saving techniques or food preservation techniques. And right out of the gate, when the very first fair, we were doing both of those things. We were stretching between new technology and and old old systems and old culture. But um, I really think that the popularity of the fair and how quickly it grew had a lot to do with, um, yes, what we were offering at the fair, but also what was no longer offered anywhere else, which is, you know, neighbors that share information. And we're, we're lucky in some places, we're lucky that we have that culture still around, but it's a harder, harder thing to find. And um, I grew up in the 80s as a teenager in the 80s, seeing, you know, me first consumerism just on the rise. It was like the most important thing to be doing was to be thinking about how you were going to make a lot of money and make a killing and all these expressions like make a killing and uh and then here was this little fair that was all about this other way and i think it's that the significance of that has not been lost on people so every year those who, who recognize that that's something lacking um come to us to find it and what's great is that the fair is now 
augmented by a whole year of educational programming that we can offer through MOFCA. So you, if you find something that interests you at the fair and you want to know more about it, we can we can really provide a lot more for you to follow it as far as you want to follow it. Um, like you said, it's like this really huge event and draws some 60,000 fairgoers and offers hundreds of workshops, talks, exhibitions. And the topics today are still that kind of range of new and old with folk arts and fiber and low impact forestry and herbs and livestock and so much more. Um, so not to mention the food men, the food vendors. So to pull it off, there's a great deal of year-round planning enacted by a committed group of volunteers, of which you are one. I'm interested in hearing about your role at the fair and what led you to it. When did you first get involved? Um, let's see. I, as a fair goer, I was one of the lucky lucky ones as a little kid to go to the very first fair, um, and. Uh, growing up in Maine, I, I, the fair was always there, and I and I often went uh, as a youngster. I did. I missed a decade or so, uh, the latter part of the Windsor days, and but as soon as we moved up to Unity, I I got somewhat involved. I had a friend with a workhorse that was coming up and wanted a hand dealing with people and working in the woods during the fair, and I I was so impressed that there was a fairgrounds in Maine with a working woodlot, which we have in Unity, which given that Maine is mostly a forested state and woodlot work is really the winter crop of most of our farmers, uh, or, or always was, um, I just was, I was kind of amazed that here, this, here was this working woodlot on a fairgrounds, and then I opened up the fair book and, and the woodlot wasn't on the map. They hadn't, we hadn't figured out a way to lay it out so it was on the map. So foolishly, I, I, I asked about that and I was told, oh, well, you just need to start going to these committee meetings. And the next thing I knew, I was sitting on a committee and learning about this small group of, well, anywhere from 12 to 20 people who work every month, uh, meet every month to work on helping our staff pull off the, the fall, next year's fair. And, and, uh, and that has been since 2006, I think I've been on I've been on the the fair steering committee, and then a few years later, I I moved up onto the board of directors. But um, but the year-round effort is really uh, it's it's great. It's a it's a small group of people that, like I said, maybe 12 to 20 that get together year-round uh, monthly, and um, and we basically set policy that then the staff uh, enforces for the for the fair, and so we we work through some of the challenges of, of how, how will we set standards and um, it's a it's a very cooperative effort and um, we're always looking for folks that are interested in more involvement in the uh, in the volunteer efforts year-round most of us that are involved are, are are aware that if we put in a little now we get we get back a lot more later well Eli thank you so much for all the work that you do to help get the common ground country fair going each year. And thank you so much for joining us today. I hope to see you at the fair in Unity this September. Well, thank you, Holly. It was great talking and, and thank you everybody for, for listening and uh, a big plug to ERU. If you're now joining us, we just concluded a conversation with Eli Berry, a member of MOFCA's board and Common Ground Country Fair Steering Committee. Today, we're discussing MOFCA's forthcoming 50th anniversary book called The Organic Farming Revolution. My next guest, John Bunker, is another contributor to this collection of essays about organic farming. 
John Bunker is an agricultural historian, orchardist, and homesteader. He founded Fedco Trees in 1984 and the Maine Heritage Orchard, which is located in Unity, Maine, in 2012. He is also the author of two books on apples, Not Far From the Tree, A Brief History of the Apples and the Orchards of Palermo, Maine, 1804 to 2004, and Apples and the Art of Detection, Tracking Down, Identifying, and Preserving Rare Apples. He and his partner, Cami Watts, grow fruits and vegetables and operate a rare apple CSA at Super Chili Farm in Palermo, Maine. John, welcome to Common Ground Radio. Thank you. So to start off, can you talk a bit about how you became interested in apples and how that interest blossomed into your role as an apple historian, self-described fruit explorer? Well, when I first moved to Palermo, I was 21. And all around me, uh, all around town and all around the county were, uh, I quickly noticed, old apple trees, ancient apple trees. And they seemed to be in every yard. And I began to get curious about them. There was uh, fruit on the ground every fall. And it seemed as though most people weren't doing anything about collecting them or using them. And for a 21-year-old, it was uh, free food. And so I would knock on doors and people would answer. And usually it was uh, someone my grandparents' age. And uh, nine times out of 10 or maybe 20 times out of 21, they would say, sure, take all you want. So I would be uh, collecting them in cardboard boxes and bags and whatever I could find. And and they would often come out and join me. And uh, they were retired. Their kids, who were my parents' age, were usually off at work. There were a few who were farmers, but by then most of the farms had, um, had really sort of uh, uh, ended their life as farms and now were simply residences of uh, people who worked in Augusta or Bath Iron Works or a local school or whatever. And, uh, but the grandparents often lived with their kids. And so they were the ones that came out and helped me collect apples off the lawn or out of the grass. And, and they would tell me stories about the apples. You know, this is a bald one. We use this for pies. This is a northern spy and so forth. And uh, I began to get curious about these names and the uh, stories behind the apples. And uh, I had always thought there were uh, two varieties, red apples and green apples. I didn't really know there was anything beyond that, but I quickly began to learn. And uh, eventually, um, oh, three or four years after I moved here, uh, I, I was uh, managing the Belfast Co-op store back when it was just a little one room hole in the wall on Main Street and an old fellow came by and asked if he could sell some apples in our store on consignment, which we did from time to time. And we said, sure. And he brought in the apples and they were black. And uh, he brought in two bushels. They were, and he called them black Oxfords. And I took a look at the apples and said, uh, oh, I'll buy both bushels. So I bought them all, took them home that night, 
And that really got me going on what are these varieties that originated here? What are the, uh, what are the main apples? And that, that was really that, that experience. His name was Ira Proctor, and he lived in Appleton. And that one experience combined with just exploring all the old trees in my neighborhood really got me going on, uh, on to Maine's apple history. So this concept of fruit exploration is sort of linked a little bit to an apple's biology because growing an apple orchard is different than say planting a vegetable garden in which you plant a seed of a known tomato variety and that variety, whether it's a cherry tomato or a paste tomato or a slicer will be recognizable as such come harvest time. So apple seedlings retain traits from both of their parents. And in other words, each apple seed, if given the chance, will grow into a genetically unique individual. Can you speak to how this plays into the apple diversity in Maine that you've been exploring and recording through the decades? Well, apple, so apples from seed, as you say, each one is new and unique. And they're really like us, like people. Each apple seed has a mother and a father, just like each of us has a bi biological mother and a father. And even though we may have siblings, uh, each one of our siblings, unless we're identical twins, is a, a unique combination of our biological mom and dad. And the same is true with every seed from every apple that ever was. Every one of them is a unique combination also. Once the apples were brought to Maine um, by Europeans, which they were, they're not native here. Once they were brought here, they began to seed themselves all over the place so that now, oh, we'll say roughly maybe in the last 300 years or so, they've been doing this. And now, oh, uh, researchers will tell us that there are somewhere around 80 million apple seedlings, apple trees in Maine, most of them from seed, all but just about 1% are from seed. That means there's just an incredible diversity of uh, unique apple individuals along the roads, along the rivers, along the streams, the ocean, they're just everywhere. But in order to replicate one of them, so uh, early on, um, the uh, main farmers um, noticed that one apple, like for example, the black oxford that I just mentioned, um, will keep all winter in the root cellar. Or another apple, like uh, Northern Spy that I mentioned earlier, uh, makes a really great pie and also keeps all winter. Other apples, they realized, ripen in late July or early August and make good sauce or superior dried apples, or they had some quality or another that made them desirable. And so uh, some of them, some of these discoverers, we'll say, um, tried to replicate their, their, their apples from seed and realized, oh, it's not true to type. But others knew about this process called grafting, very ancient process where you take a small cutting called a scion from the uh, desired apple, apple tree, and you splice it onto another tree with roots called the rootstock. And from that 
junction on, you have a clone. You've got a, an exact replicate. So when you go to a commercial orchard, um, you know, essentially every tree in that commercial orchard has been grafted. Um, so that's how you can have a row of Max and then a row of Cortlands and a row of Honeycrisp and so forth. In the early days of European settlement of Maine, most of the orchards were from seed because that was convenient. People could bring seeds with them in their pocket when they came up from Massachusetts or down from Quebec or over from New Brunswick, and they could plant their apple trees from seed. They didn't know what they were going to get. Each one is a apple crapshoot, so to speak, but um, but that didn't matter to them because most of the apples they were going to use were going to be in cider, and small, bitter apples make great cider, and uh, a bunch of the other apples were going to be used as animal feed, and, and seedling apples do pretty well with that. But occasionally, they would discover one of these, like, you know, like the Black Oxford or the Tolman Sweet or the Baldwin or, you know, whatever. And, uh, and they would recognize its value beyond the cider barrel. And then they would uh, begin to graft them and they would pass them around the neighborhood. Often these apples uh, had no name. So they just uh, gained a name by calling them, you know, after the town that where they were discovered or after the person who discovered them. So all over Maine, apples, and really all over the eastern U.S., apples were being discovered, named, and passed around uh, by this process of grafting. Many of them never got to be very popular. They were only grown in a town or two. Um, one of my favorites that I've been um, researching recently is called Fletcher Sweet which uh, originated in Lincolnville and was really never grown, as far as we can tell, beyond Union, which is just really, you know, a town away. Others, like Baldwin, which originated outside Boston, became incredibly popular and were grown by the hundreds of thousands. So some were just local favorites and others were uh, became really popular. Well, Macintosh, too. Macintosh is a is one of these old selections that came up as a seedling in somebody's backyard. And then eventually, of course, became the most popular apple of New York and New England for you know, over 100 years. All of it is fascinating. I'm curious about how you research such an apple, like the one that originated in Lincolnville. How do you come to find and, and know about these somewhat forgotten fruits? Well, that's a good question, and, and um, identifying, you know, I call what I do um, um, tracking down, identifying, and preserving rare apples, and um, part, part, a big part of what I do is attempting to identify them, um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's really a combination of all three, tracking down, preserving, identifying, and preserving, and a chunk of that work is, is really botanical research. It's learning the difference between um, the different characteristics that an apple has. Some have the, the depression around the stem is called the cavity, and the cavity can be in different shapes. And the depression around the other end, the calyx end, 
is called the basin, and that can be in different shapes. And the apple itself can be in different shapes, and the coloring can be different, and the inside configuration around the core can be different. All these things are clues as to what variety you have found. However, the information that exists of many of these old historic varieties is really uh, scant at best. Um, many of them just say, uh, you know, we, we have, you know, this apple, we'll call it Fletcher Sweet, which is this apple from Lincolnville, is, uh, is green and, and tastes great and ripens in October or something like that. So often we have almost nothing to go by when it comes to the, uh, to the description of the apple itself. So we have to go about it. I have to go about it um, in other ways. For example, um, with the Fletcher Suite, we found a fellow who knew where there was an old tree in Lincolnville that he remembered as a boy that he knew as Fletcher Suite. And he took us to that tree. And the tree was about 99% dead when we got there. But we did, we, I was able to go back in the winter and find one little twig that I could uh, save and then uh, use that to graft more trees. Um, we use um, historical uh, documents. For example, many towns in Maine have written uh, histories of the town in, in the last you know, 50 or 100 years. Those can be excellent. We use newspapers. So the newspapers will tell you the fair premiums of what apples won an award at the local fair and who grew them. These are incredibly valuable because then you can find that, you know, John Smith or Jane Jones grew this apple in this location in this year. And that can even lead you to the right home where sometimes, or the right farm, where sometimes the old tree is still there. We use diaries and journals, and uh, there's a really terrific series of books called the um, Maine Agricultural Yearbooks, which were published for about 50 years, and have a report from the Pomological Society uh, in each issue. And those, um, those reports have uh, descriptions of, sometimes descriptions of the apple, but more often who was growing certain apples and where they were growing them. So it's, it's really, I think of it as being um, sort of like Sherlock Holmes, that, that you need to be, the, the apple explorer, as it were, uh, needs to be sort of clever about using lots of different uh, historical records in order to reconstruct what an apple that you found might be. Um, I also, um, after seeing, after admiring the wanted posters on the wall of the local post office when I was growing up, I decided I would make uh, apple posters, which are not wanted dead or alive, but wanted alive, and put them up. Uh, near the location where I know a, a historic apple was grown. And that has led a number of times to people calling me and say, oh, I know where that farm is, or, you know, I know that apple, and leading me to these uh, 
ancient trees, which still exist scattered around the state. And, uh, and many of these uh, ancient, you know, thought to be lost varieties are still out there. Are there um, specific apple varieties that you're on the hunt for right now? Absolutely, there are, there are dozens of them. And they are primarily what I've been focusing on and others, we have a, a group of us who are all uh, either staff or volunteers at the Maine Heritage Orchard in Unity at Mosca. And we're all uh, mostly now on the lookout for the varieties, the really rare varieties, which are the ones that originated from seed in the various towns of Maine. The list is long, but uh, one of the ones I'm, I'm going to be uh, uh, speaking around the state this fall, and when I um, when I go places, I I try to uh, uh, sort of educate myself about what are the varieties nearby that we're particularly looking for, because because with these rare varieties, you're likely to find them only in one town or two towns or maybe in one county. But what I'm looking for now, we're looking for is called the Union Pippin, and uh, which is down in Union in Knox County, and I'm going to be going down there soon to check out what's going on down there and see if I can see if I can find people that uh, they may not even know the name Union Pippin, but they may have uh, ancient trees that one of which still is it. Uh, over in Franklin County, um, we're looking for the um, the Sarah apple which uh, I've written about a lot, and I think I may have found it, but I'm really not sure. And Mafka's uh, executive director is Sarah Alexander, and, and so uh, I have a, a special hope of tracking down the Sarah apple because I think there should be a Sarah apple growing in Sarah Alexander's yard and certainly right in front of the Mafka Education Center. So those are just two, but yes, there are many all over the state. You are listening to Common Ground Radio on WERU Community Radio. On today's show, we're discussing Mafka's 50th anniversary book called The Organic Farming Revolution, Past, Present, Future, which will be out this fall from Downey's Books. You can pre-order a copy at www.mafka.org. My guests today are Eli Berry and John Bunker, and they're both contributing essayists. This is a pre-recorded show, and we are not taking calls at this time. So John, you mentioned the Maine Heritage Orchard and it being located on Mafka's grounds in Unity. It's a repository that you founded for the genetic diversity of apples in Maine, and it includes over 300 varieties representing each of the state's 16 counties. You've said that some of these trees that you're searching for are the, the last ones in existence, but why is it important to preserve them and to have this preservation orchard? Well, that's a, that's a question that I uh, struggled with for years, especially because early on when I was, I felt like I was just uh, wildly, we'll say, attracted to these old varieties and really wanted to find them and, and, um, and love the colors and the shapes and the sizes and the, and the flavors and all that. I still wondered to myself, why am I doing this? especially because uh, I would occasionally attend um, meetings of commercial growers 
And sometimes they would um, sort of poo-poo the old varieties and say, well, they really don't taste very good and, and you know, we shouldn't be growing them and, and so forth and so on. And why bother? They had their day, they're gone. And I kept thinking to myself, maybe, maybe there is a reason. Maybe these old timers, as we called them, um, were actually smarter than maybe even smarter than us. And uh, maybe they were doing this um, for a reason that I don't yet understand. And at that point, um, I got this idea that I would learn to bake a passable pie. And I contacted a friend of mine who's a really good chef and said, teach me to make a crust. I don't want it to be a fancy crust. I don't want it to be a focus of my pie. I want it to be a vehicle so that I could make lots of pies and taste lots of apples. And so he did. And, uh, and I can make a sort of passable pie crust. And I started baking pies with every variety that I came across, especially the ones that were clearly weird tasting or didn't, they weren't good tasted, eaten fresh, or as we say it, they weren't good as dessert apples. There was something odd about them. And I didn't think they'd sell well if you put them in the grocery store. And all of a sudden, I realized, oh, my goodness, my hypothesis is, I think, correct, which is that these were never meant to be eaten fresh. And I started to, to find apples that made the best pies. And then I started making sauce, which, you know, my friends would make it by taking all the discarded apples at the end of the season and throwing them all in a big pot and blending it all together and then canning it. And instead, I started making sauce every day with the apples as they ripened on the trees. And I started to realize, oh, some of these cook up in sauce in, you know, three minutes. And it's creamy and frothy and cooks quick and it's delicious. And others, you cook them for an hour and they're floating around like limp leather. And uh, they're, they're not sauce apples at all. And and then I started to learn that some were good for baking and some were good for even for molasses. And each of these old varieties had a special use. Most of the apples traditionally were not eaten fresh. They were cooked or processed in some way. They were dried or made into cider or cooked in this dish or that. And, and occasionally people would come to me and say, you know, I'm going to go to the grocery store. Tell me what to buy for a pie apple. And I realized you can't get them anymore. You can't get a rip. Well, Macintosh makes a pretty good sauce. That's true. But there are other sauce apples that, that are exceedingly tasty and delicious in their own way. Some apples fry really well. So part of the reason, you know, part of the reason is that these apples, the apple is so much more, uh, diverse, I guess you'd say, uh, um, in the things that it can do. An apple is not just for eating fresh. It can do all sorts of things. Also, the apples um, uh, connect us with our history and our past. Um, they connect us with place. People these days are often transient you know they we live in one place we live in another we follow the work around the country 
Many people live in three or four or more locations over the course of 10 or 20 years. We need, we need uh, benchmarks to connect us with place, and apples can do that. Um, also, many of these old varieties, these old apples have, well, really all of them have really withstood the test of time. They have withstood droughts and long, long periods of other kinds of poor weather, terrible storms, test winters when the temperatures fluctuated in weird ways and thousands of trees died. They have withstood insects and disease. Some of these apples um, are probably going to be important to the breeders of apples of the future because they hold a very wide genetic, uh, say genetic fingerprint. The, the dessert apples that we eat today, the Fujis and Galas and Honeycrisps and all those, they, they represent a very small, thin slice of the genetic apple uh, genome, we'll say. And, um, but the old varieties are much wider and have a much, uh, have a, uh, many other genetic traits that may be of great value in the future because of uh, what they bring to the apple breeder. So they, they connect us with the past. They're really useful in fun ways. They have interesting flavors. You can cook with them in interesting ways. If you want to make cider, that many of them make great cider. And they're also maybe part of the key to maintaining and continuing a, uh, and inventing a sort of, uh, we'll say, pomological future. You talk about the importance of planting orchards in your essay, The Democracy of the Apple Tree, and I'm hoping you would read an excerpt for us right now. Uh, okay. Well, let's see here what we have. Um, when you eat a Rolf, a Kavanaugh, or a Black Oxford, you're eating the same fruit that someone ate two centuries ago. You can be standing here beside an old tree and magically you're transported back to another time, still connected to the same place, the same tree, the same fruit. From that vantage point 200 years ago, you can look forward to the present and on to the future. You can be in two places at once, or is it one place in many times? It's time traveling right in your own backyard. From this orchard, we can take the long view. We can have perspective. We can let go of what is not important and envision a new path to the future. Someone in the past, I'll never know, planted these old trees for me. Now, I get to use this gift while I'm here. I'll mulch and I'll mow and prune and pick. I'll smell the flowers in mid-May 
and lie in the shade in August. I'll press cider and drink it with friends under January stars. I'll look out for the rarest varieties and graft young trees to keep them going for future generations. I'll renew and be renewed. Caring for the orchard is a responsibility, or is it an opportunity? Maybe responsibility and opportunity are just two sides of the same apple. Then someday, like the baton in a relay race or the eternal torch in the Olympics, I'll pass the orchard on to someone new, someone I may never know. Thank you, John. That was John Bunker reading from his essay, The Democracy of the Apple Tree, which is included in Mothka's forthcoming book titled The Organic Farming Revolution. And thank you so much for joining us today, John. Hey, thank you very much. I'm, I'm really glad to be here. Thanks, Holly. Thanks to our listeners for joining us for Common Ground Radio. Tune in on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. on WERU Community Radio for more conversations about local food and organic agriculture. Archives of previous episodes can be found on weru.org and on the WERU app. Stay tuned for more great programming.